Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Well, welcome everybody to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Abby Duty and Curtis Wister, the Meg Whitman and Elon Musk to my Bill Gates. How are you guys doing today? Doing well, Ben. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. We, uh, as you know, with with our show, we like to go in lots of different angles around aging, retirement, and especially how those two themes work in the state of Maine. And one of the things as financial advisors, we get asked a lot from clients, but also just people we bump into is, it seems cryptocurrency seems to be the thing of the day, right? Is there, there just seems to be lots of questions about what it is and how it's impacting people. There's questions about how it's going to change maybe our day-to-day world. That kind of led us to think about this a little bit is maybe there's a show here of, you know, I think for a lot of us and, you know, even the three of us that maybe there's a level of education that we can all do here to kind of get a little bit more up to speed on on the history of, of cryptocurrency, what it is today, um, how it's impacting us, but and also kind of looking forward and how that's tying into our lives, our daily lives and in our retirement and, and how we think about aging as well. We thought, well, geez, there's really a show here. And that's something where for us, we we wanted to dig into that. So in regards to, of course, anytime we're talking about something and cryptocurrency is investment, this really isn't meant to be, hey, this is a recommendation in any way for the for that as an asset class. The thought really was, well, let's just kind of get all better educated. So because we are um, overseen by the Security Exchange Commission and we we are kind of talking in an investment today that is investable. We do have some disclosures that I, I do need to read. So bear with me while I while I work through these because we want to make sure this is an important conversation, but also we want to make sure we're we're staying um, true to uh, to what we should be doing from a regulatory perspective too and making sure you guys are fully aware of, of the conversation we're having. So the first thing I need to say is that Guidance Point Advisors is an SEC registered investment advisor and we only transact in business uh, transact business in states where it is pre- properly registered or is excluded or exempted from registration requirements. Registration as an investment advisor does not constitute endorsement of the firm by securities regulators, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. The tax and legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. Information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk. There can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for your portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss, and past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell, or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein. So with that, I really we really wanted to reach out to somebody that really knew their their onions here about cryptocurrency, right? And that's something where we, you know, in terms of our connections, we want to reach out to somebody that we thought, look, he 
he's had some expertise in the past with it, but also is deeply involved, but also could help teach us. And so that was the combo we were looking for. So the gentleman we, we found, he is a manager for the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston's Applied FinTech Research Team. He contributes to the bank's research and experimentation with emerging technology and its potential impact on both the financial services industry and the Federal Reserve's mission broadly. Prior to joining the Boston Fed, he worked for Circle Internet Financial, a cryptocurrency payments and exchange company where he led the compliance team's blockchain, forensics, and market surveillance functions. Before Circle, Tyler was a senior trader with Fidelity Investments, where he was responsible for supervising teams of traders in a variety of asset classes. He's a graduate of the Boston College Carroll School of Management and a CFHR holder. So please welcome Tyler Frederick to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Tyler, appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, Tyler, I know um, obviously in your your role, and we all are in the uh, financial services industries here, I know you have a, a little disclosure you need to make before you come on and, and do any formal presentation and talk here. Would you like to just share that with the audience at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Just any anything I mentioned on the podcast here are my own opinions. I don't represent the Federal Reserve System, Boston Fed, and anything like that. So gotcha. yeah, happy to be here. Well, awesome. Well, well, thanks for coming on because um, obviously – cryptocurrency and and all the different types of cryptocurrency the technology blockchain i think we've heard about it we've read about this a lot and i know uh, not only just maybe the audience but our clients and us i think we all have a lot of questions and i think this would be really great kind of thing to walk through today with you so i appreciate you coming on but one of the things we always want to get to here is a little bit about you, Tyler, is, is your background and kind of how you kind of got to uh, your point today with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. So love to just hear to start, just talk about your growing up experience um, and what that was like and any connections to Maine there. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I was born here in the Northeast. Family took me out to Southern California. So that's where I did most of my growing up. But I always came back to see family in Maine and uh, you know, keep in touch with the roots back here. Came back to New England for school, and ultimately, I was I was trapped back here. Kept pulling me back. Uh, so ever since, I've been back here in New England. After college, I, I started down the financial services industry with uh, Fidelity Investments. It was really you know during that time frame that I did have an interest in cryptocurrency. Kept an eye on it, and 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 you know this is. Back kind of in the early days of uh, cryptocurrency, you know, we would say 2011, 12, 13, 14, kind of in around there. After Fidelity, I got an opportunity to work for a cryptocurrency exchange. So did that for a couple of years. Just quite quite an experience, especially coming from an established financial firm like Fidelity, moving into the cryptocurrency space. And then after working for the, the cryptocurrency exchange, uh, moved over to the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, studying applied fintech. So kind of putting some of that industry experience with the innovative technologies and then bringing that industry experience within the Fed. And one of the things that we do have to say to the audience, when you hear applied fintech and you hear that the guest is going to be talking about cryptocurrency, we are going to promise we're going to keep this as accessible to you all as we can and and we've we've held tyler down he's promised to to make sure that we're not talking uh, uh too much technical language with you here today but 
I'd love to just hear a little bit more of what you love about your job, but also in terms of like why this career path has been kind of the career path that you chose. Because I know when you talk about, hey, fidelity to a cryptocurrency exchange to then the Fed Reserve Bank of Boston, you know, on the surface, you go, hey, obviously it's all financial services, but those are three very different things, very different roles. But I know there's a through thread there. And I'd love to just kind of hear what that is about what has kind of grown for you and ignited that passion. Yeah, I think we've obviously seen technology just generally in society rapidly advance the last couple decades. You, know, you think about the internet, you think about where we were, you know, everyone was going to Blockbuster a couple decades ago, and now we stream everything through Netflix and all that. You know, we think about these radical innovations, and there's a lot of innovation potential in the financial services space. You know, whether that's the, you know, broker dealer investment space, whether that's the payment space. And blockchain, cryptocurrency, this whole world that we'll be talking about today, there's a lot of innovation. And there are a lot of people who are incredible technologists kind of experimenting with code. And, you know, we're seeing some of that just kind of radical experimentation that's kind of on the fringes, gradually working its way in. And and we're seeing, you know, corporations, we're seeing financial institutions starting to get a little bit involved with this stuff. So it's fascinating to see that evolution happen. Yeah. And what I, what I love about maybe our point in time capture that we're having today is, um, you know, it, it almost kind of speaks to those of us that can kind of think about that the early days of the internet, right? Is, you know, while it's this really massive thing, it becomes accessible, but we don't really know where it's going. We know it's going to be big. We know it's going to be something that's going to be impactful and change our lives and, and be widespread here, but we don't know how. We don't know why. We just kind of have this faith and we believe it is. And I think that's where, you know, if you listen maybe 20 years from today and, you know, in 2021, I I think that's might be, hey, well, that was an interesting conversation about where they were in this point in time, because Tyler, from your career perspective, just from obviously the knowing you for some time and, and kind of all of us knowing you for some time here is that look from you getting involved in cryptocurrency, look, the rules are being written on a daily basis. So I think that that's, that's where I, I think we wanted to go today. It was you know, hearing about some of this, where it's gone, where it is today, but also where it's going to be and how it's going to impact our everyday people. And I think that's the biggest thing that, uh, again, we hope people uh, are listening to today and what they're going to get out of today's show. So I'd like to really just dig into a lot of these things and and maybe just start from a definitional perspective. I, I think it's always just kind of level set. Let's just all use the same terms and really understand what we're each other talking about. And the first thing I really want to ask on a definitional perspective is what is cryptocurrency? That's a good question. And it's a simple question. And we could probably spend a few hours just talking about what that even means. But fundamentally, a cryptocurrency is a fully digital currency, not issued by the government, not issued by, you know, it's not a liability against a financial institution or anything like that. It's a digital currency. And where the crypto part comes from is it's secured by cryptography. So very fundamentally, cryptography, you have a public key and you have a private key. And you put your public key out so that everyone can see it. Yeah, that's that's fine. And basically what the public key does is, you know, that 
that's where people can spend money to. You have your private key, and that's basically the password to your funds. Uh, you know, if you lose your password, you potentially lose access to your money. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to recover if you didn't back it up somewhere. Um, so you don't have some of the safeguards that you may have with uh, you know traditional uh, bank accounts or what have you, where you can reset your password. Just to add is like just fr- from hearing your description, almost sounds like. Like if you think of kind of show on the YouTube, it's like, so here's your, here's your wallet and you have actual physical dollars or paper in that currency. And so if I left this on the bus somewhere, you know, and it's gone because the the dollars that are in there are now gone, right? Is that essentially how you're describing that if I lost my password? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. A lot of people refer to cryptocurrencies as digital bearer assets. Like cash is a bearer instrument. If you lose that dollar bill, you know, kind of tough luck. Cryptocurrencies are similar. If you forget your private key or lose your private key, you lose your funds. And and you hear those news articles from time to time about how somebody had their private key stored on a hard drive, it got you know sent to a landfill, and somebody's you know trying to dig it out because uh, they had you know tens of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin on there. So yeah, it's uh, it, you know, and that's fundamentally what it is. Is it's a fully digital currency. It's a digital bearer asset, not issued by the government. So it's not a fiat quote unquote currency, you know, fiat currencies, dollars, euros, yens, you know, they're put out by a monetary authority. You know, cryptocurrencies aren't that. And they allow you to send digital payments to one another without the need for financial institutions, without the need for banks. So you and I, you know, we can just generate our own private keys, public keys, our own cryptographic keys, and just send payments to one another uh, without going through banks. So can I, I want to ask a, a question here about buying a cryptocurrency, right? So like, I'm just thinking about this, if um, obviously we're in Maine, and we are so a very common occurrence is that us Mainers, we travel across the border to Canada. And we buy Canadian dollars, right? So we have our American dollars, we buy Canadian dollars. So we're familiar with we go, we can go to the bank ahead of time, we say we need this much, and there's an exchange rate. And they take your dollars and they give you back Canadian dollars and toonies and loonies and all that, right? So can you just explain what that process is like from a cryptocurrency perspective if you bought a cryptocurrency? Because, you know, it's a little bit different where I have maybe, maybe physical paper dollars, but I have US dollars or I have some other currency and I exchange this into crypto. Like, what is that process like and where do my dollars go? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I remember back to the really early days of Bitcoin, back 2011, 2012, and you mentioned physical cash. I remember that's how that used to work. It, you know, there were websites, and they weren't the most sophisticated or uh, you know secure websites, but you would meet up with people on a street corner or something like that, and you could exchange currency for Bitcoin. Now, that's certainly I never did anything like that because that doesn't necessarily sound like. Uh, you know, nope, not on the up and up way to do it. Um, <laughs> so nowadays, fortunately, we've we've come a long way. We've advanced, and there are you know, pretty numerous cryptocurrency exchanges. And you can open up an account online. Uh, you can open. Uh, you can link a bank account. You can link a credit card, debit card, you name it. You can send the dollars to the uh, exchange. You know, some of them have an order book where you can do sophisticated trading, more like a, a you know brokerage platform. Some of them you just have a conversion rate and it just charges you a fee, you know, your funds are converted. So you're exchanging your dollars to the platform and then, you know, you get Bitcoin in return. 
And a lot of times the Bitcoin are held in your account with the exchange. And then from there, you can transfer the funds to a wallet on your phone or a you know, personal wallet, which we can talk about. And then, you know, conversely, you can sell your Bitcoin to an exchange and receive dollars back. So these cryptocurrency exchanges, and I work for one of those exchanges, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, those are sort of your on-ramps and off-ramps to convert between a fiat currency and cryptocurrency. Interesting. I appreciate that explanation because I, I think that knowing how that works is helpful to maybe understanding then how it's applied. And and I know one thing that you mentioned already, uh, Tyler, was was this thing about blockchain. And I, I, I think we're maybe, some of us have heard maybe cryptocurrencies and some of the popular ones out there, but, you know, that we also hear maybe, maybe second right after that is something called this blockchain and bar blockchain technology and, and how that's, that's this, the, the fancy thing behind it. So I know obviously we only have a finite amount of time on this show, but I'd love for you to explain just as simply as you could, what, what this blockchain thing really is. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, so we'll talk generally because if if you talk to a bunch of technologists, if you talk to 10 technologists, you'll probably get 11 different answers on what blockchain is. Blockchain gets a lot of buzz. So let's, you know, before we dive into blockchain, let's think digital currency. So you've got to store numbers in a database somewhere, right? You know, like electronically. So you know, we can think about that Hypothetically, I could run an Excel spreadsheet on my computer and just keep track of who owns, you know, a certain amount of money and just, you know, have a big Excel spreadsheet on my personal computer. Now, I can hypothetically do that, but there are a bunch of actual problems with that, right? So for starters, what happens if I unplug my computer? Now, all the people using this digital currency can't access the spreadsheet that I have on my computer. So that's obviously an issue. Mm -hmm. So you probably want to distribute copies of this in some way so that if one computer goes offline, the whole thing doesn't break, right? You know, if, it, if it's going to be a currency, probably needs to be available 24-7. So you need to distribute this, the, the copy of the ledger across different platforms. The other problem, if I'm just running a spreadsheet on my computer is, well, what if I just edited some numbers and changed somebody's balances or inserted money? So mm -hmm. that's a problem too. So those are a couple of the problems that blockchain tries to solve is this, you know, one piece resilience, you know, making sure that the system remains available at all times. Then the other piece is integrity of the data, making sure that somebody doesn't make unauthorized edits to the, to the ledger, so on and so forth. So what a blockchain is, is it sometimes you hear distributed ledger technology. And essentially what you do is you take copies of the ledger and you spread them across a bunch of nodes or a bunch of different computers that have copies of the spreadsheet. So that, that helps the resilience piece that, you know, make sure it doesn't go offline. So that presents some challenges because how do you make sure all the different copies of the spreadsheet that are potentially spread all around the world match each other? You know, how do you ensure that when one computer makes a change, that that change, that that, that, that authorized change is replicated across all the different machines? So that leads to, uh, you know, a little technical jargon you hear consensus sometimes. Uh, computers have to maintain consensus. So there's a process through which all these different cryptocurrencies, they have their own consensus protocols and, you know, they ensure that uh, all the different copies of the ledger are in sync. Now, where the blockchain piece comes from, because we haven't talked about blocks, you haven't talked mm -hmm. about chains, <laughs> where the blockchain piece comes from is you have transactions that get submitted to the platform. 
Now, each individual transaction is going to update the ledger, right? If I send, you know, $5 to Bob, you know, that or five or, you know, or a tenth of a Bitcoin or whatever the unit of currency is, there needs to be an adjustment to my account, my balance and adjustment to Bob's balance or his account. So those transactions get submitted. Now, how blockchains work is they bundle these transactions into blocks. So a block will contain however many different transactions. When a block gets added to the ledger to actually process the transactions, there's a cryptographic proof that gets generated. And then when a new block gets created, it refers back to the old block. So you can't edit old blocks. They've, they're cryptographically linked together. If you try to edit an old block, it breaks the link. So other nodes, all the other computers with the copies of the ledger will be able to see, oh, this block, it broke the chain. It, it, you know, it, this, it violates the rules of our platform, so it'll recognize it as an invalid block. So that's where the name blockchain comes from. Each block of transactions is chained together cryptographically. Hmm. And I know maybe the, the kind of the next thing there is like, yeah, and I guess we're going to get to a little bit of fraud later, but I think that was a really good explanation, Tyler, because I think that's yeah. really important to to know those two things and how they're working together. And a question that we get at the end of the day, because it feels like from a, from a media perspective or maybe those that are out there, they're maybe they're just kind of dismissive of like, well, oh, cryptocurrency, it's really just digital gold, right? Like, what do, what do you hear or what do you feel like or what do you think of when you hear people say at the end of the day, this is just a digital version of gold? I, I think one of the interesting things about cryptocurrency is it captures a lot of people's imagination for a lot of different reasons. You know, you do get people who like the idea of having an asset, you know, you can sort of think about it, it is sort of like a commodity, uh, cryptocurrency, you know, it's not linked to a company's financials, uh, it's not put out by a government. Uh, so for, you know, in a certain sense, you can think about certain cryptocurrencies like gold, but each cryptocurrency is different. So, you know, there are a bunch of reasons, you know, for each respective cryptocurrency, why somebody might choose to invest or, uh, or not invest, but I think one of the key innovations that blockchain allowed, if you really boil it down, it allows two people who don't trust one another to send a digital payment through the internet without any third party intermediary maintaining the books and records. That, that fundamentally is the innovation of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally. And, you know, that's kind of a novel concept. And, and I know we're going to talk about the, all the reasons why and lots of different things later, but appreciate that explanation. Um, so your answer before was a perfect segue into my next question, which is how many cryptocurrencies are there, right? So you mentioned that there's a bunch of different ones. So how many of them are there? Yeah, there are a bunch. Uh, there are thousands out there. Uh, you know, I, I think it's between six, six and seven thousand, somewhere in there. It's concentrated at the top, though. So, you know, anybody can go out and create a cryptocurrency. There are no rules against it. You know, it's just software. So I can run, I can just take a copy of, you know, one of the leading cryptocurrencies, just create my own version, spin it up. No one can stop me. But that doesn't make it valuable, right? <laughs> you know, I can, likewise, I can just print off some Tyler's dollars, uh, you know, out of my printer. And it doesn't make those valuable. So you have 
Bitcoin, which is definitely the top cryptocurrency. Uh, it's about 60% of the market. When you look at it by uh, market cap, you know, how much the asset's worth in total. Um, you have Ether, Ethereum, that's uh, second place, about 10% of the market. So right right between those two, you have 70% of the market. Yeah, that's great. So that answered my next question, which was what are the more popular versions of them? So you just named them. Um, I think another thing that people have a lot of questions about is how is more cryptocurrency created? That's a good question. So let's talk about how, from a user's perspective, how a cryptocurrency transaction happens. Uh, because you know we hear about mining cryptocurrency mm -hmm. a lot. That is how new units of cryptocurrency are created, and it's part of the flow of a transaction. So let's say I'm an end user, and I'm looking to send funds, send Bitcoin to my friend Bob. I create a transaction. I sign it with my private key, and and they it's a technical term. They call it a signature. So you can think about it like a check, where you you know write it, you put your signature on it. So I put my cryptographic signature on the transaction. I submit it to the network through the internet. That gets picked up by uh, a computer who's mining transactions. Now, what crypto uh, what cryptocurrency mining is is we talked about before. You can't just give one person the power to edit balances or you know, one person the power to reject or accept transactions. So what mining is, is each block, miners need to solve a puzzle that meets certain criteria. So computers, and, and it's a simple, you know, sometimes you hear, hear it described as, you know, complex calculations. They're actually simple calculations, but it's like a lottery. You just have to hit the right one. So the more guesses you get, the more likely that you're going to get the answer right. So once you, you know, kind of get a, you know, once your computer generates the right number that solves the puzzle, you have the right to create a new block. So you have these powerful computers, they're churning out guesses, you know, they're buying a bunch of lottery tickets, they're churning out a bunch of guesses. That consumes a lot of electricity, but they're churning out a bunch of guesses. When you win the lottery, when you generate that number, you have the right to take the block to pick which transactions go in the block and add the block to the blockchain. Oh. And when you add the block to the blockchain, you receive transaction fees. So each transaction uh, that goes through the Bitcoin network pays transaction fees. If the network's overloaded, for example, the more fee, the you know closer you are to the front of the line. So you know if you put a really low fee, you might be waiting till the higher fee transactions get accepted and added to the blockchain. And then miners also get newly created Bitcoin as a reward. So that's the incentive for miners to actually process transactions. You know, we think about traditional payment systems, you have you know, credit card companies who, you know, their systems do all the processing and how do they make money? They charge fees. Right. Um, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, it's decentralized. Anybody can be a miner if they want to, but we need to be able to incentivize and make sure people actually do that job. So by paying them transaction fees and also by paying them newly created Bitcoin, that's how miners are incentivized to do their jobs. So Tyler, I, I guess that, that leads to a follow-up question then is, so obviously when you're making your own cryptocurrency or whatever other, you know, whatever coin that's out there that's being created for the first time, is there some level of predetermination of how many of these uh, additional new kind of uh, coins are coming out this like and in a month or in a year or whatever because i could see where if all of a sudden we get really good at mining right all of a sudden you know we we're, we just 
not only just it's not the lottery anymore. We really give we gamed it. We figured out how to really make as many of these as we possibly could. It feels like that would devalue, right? Because if we put so many out there, we created all this extra um, amounts of these currencies. Wouldn't it just devalue the entirety of the of the group itself? That's a really good question. And yes, each different cryptocurrency is going to have its own monetary policy. And that's actually the term that you know some of these these cryptocurrency people use is monetary policy. So yeah, each one of the one of the neat things about cryptocurrency is the software is publicly auditable. You know, anybody can just go on the internet, look at the code, you know, anybody can run the software themselves so they can see what the code says. For example, with Bitcoin, it's part of the protocol that 21 million Bitcoin is the maximum that's ever going to be mined at this point. You have periodically, so there's a miners get larger block rewards early on, and gradually that tapers off over time. The idea, the idea is that there's going to be more adoption over time, so transaction fees would take up a bigger slice of the pie, and you can decrease the block rewards. Yeah, uh, Bitcoin has a set cap at 21 million. Contrast Ether, no cap on that. You know, they, they have a target mm. inflation inflation rate, if you will, a target supply increase over time. But yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that can change by currency. And then even cryptocurrencies themselves, they can change their monetary policy over time if enough users agree. It's a good question. So Tyler, uh, just today though, I know again we're talking 2021 in the spring. Like, where is uh, you just mentioned Bitcoin of having that cap of 21 million? How close are they to 21 million today? Do you know, that's a good question. I I, I believe we're the block reward has been decreased a few times. I don't know off the top of my head. I think we're in the teens uh, of millions. Okay, um, it's just it's just helpful. It's like well, because at some point, then you've reached your cap, and then. You know, does that mean, hey, it's more valuable because your cap has been met or is it less valuable because now there's less incentive to because you don't get extra coin for you? It's all the transaction fees at that point. Right. So it's, it's, it'd be interesting as a you know, future uh, instance of what what does it mean when you've re- reached the cap? There is a lot of debate about this, even in the crypto space. There's debate about what are the implications for the security of the platform. There's debate about for Bitcoin, the rewards, like we said, gradually decrease, taper, taper off over time. So people are saying, you know, is that part of the reason the price is going up? One of the other kind of novel things that Bitcoin does is it can dynamically adjust the difficulty of mining depending on how good people get at it. So what Bitcoin does is it targets a 10 minute block time. So if it sees that, all right, you know, a bunch of miners came online, everyone's taking guesses, we're getting faster blocks. Um, it can make it harder so that, and it does it automatically. It's not, you know, a human being, you know, mm-hmm. flipping a switch or anything. And it kind of tries to reset it back to that 10 minute goal. So I have kind of a, what I feel like is a loaded question for you, Tyler. Why <laughs> do you think cryptocurrencies are so popular? That's a good question. So it, you know, it'll it'll definitely depend on who you ask. Mm-hmm. I think if we go back all the way to when Bitcoin was created and the the white paper was published in 2008, the first block was mined January of 2009. What was going on in 2008, 2009? 
Well, the world was in a complicated situation financially, right? We were in the middle of the global financial crisis at that point. Uh, the first Bitcoin block that was mined, the miner, and this is probably that infamous Satoshi uh, Nakamoto uh, that, that you hear people talk about as the inventor of Bitcoin, but they embedded a message in there. It was a headline from the Times, and it was, you know, in, in the UK that, you know, the banks were on the verge of a second bailout you know, something like that. So, you know, th there could be an aspect to that that they wanted to prove that the block was mined after that news article came out. So there could have been an element of that, but there was probably an element of reaction to Wall Street, bailouts, too big to fail, all this stuff. You know, it's a novel financial asset that isn't controlled by banks, isn't controlled by the government. And there's, there are a lot of people who find that part appealing. There are definitely a lot of people who find it appealing from a speculative perspective. You know, it, in a lot of manias, right, you just have people piling in because they want to make money on trading. Mm. But if we kind of go under that a little bit, what are people speculating on, right? Why are people speculating on Bitcoin? You know, we talked about digital gold. Some people do kind of like that sort of thesis that, mm -hmm. you know, this is a digital gold, you know, it's a hedge against inflation. And you have the added component of, you know, gold, it, there's not much more adoption of gold. You know, every, everyone, yeah. every, you know, there are tons of people invested in gold, but you could probably foresee more people investing in Bitcoin. So you could foresee adoption. So I think there are a bunch of reasons why people would be interested. Some people are interested just because it's the technology, the software is compelling. And I think you get into some of these other cryptocurrencies where it's not just payments and you can do sort of complicated financial trading and create financial instruments. And it's it's kind of a melding of finance and technology where, you know, it's it's just open source software. You know, they're, the rules aren't set in stone. You know, a lot of our investment advising, retirement uh, planning and all this, you know, there's a lot of science to it. Mm. And in the cryptocurrency world, it's not as formulaic. You know, the rules haven't really been written yet. Conventions and standards haven't been generated. So I think people find that compelling. You can be creative within the finance, within the finance context, which, you know, mm. that, it's not always possible to do. So and you're, you're teeing up my next follow up there perfectly. So speaking of rules, I think there's a a common, uh, I guess, thought or question of the legality of cryptocurrencies. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, I, I think it's just for someone who may not be that informed on it, they see it as this currency that, as you said, it's not backed by a bank, it's not backed by a government. What, like, what is, can I, is it used for me to do, buy illegal things on the internet? Like, what, is, can you kind of get into that aspect of it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, Cryptocurrencies are definitely legal to own. So we'll, we'll start with that. Sometimes you hear there, there are no rules. It's the Wild West. There are rules. It's not quite the Wild West. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a balance to all this. There, there is a lot of unknowns and, and there are some knowns. One of the places that is definitely known is anti-money laundering rules. When you send a Bitcoin or obtain Bitcoin, when you're touching an exchange, when you're touching a financial institution where you're getting Bitcoin from or you're sending Bitcoin or, or maybe you're storing your Bitcoin with a financial institution using them to send it somewhere. When you're using a financial institution, they need to follow anti-money laundering laws. And mm -hmm. so when you sign up for a, a, an account to buy some Bitcoin, you're going to need to provide your identity. You're going to need to submit your name, uh, your address, 
you know, a lot, uh, social security number if you're in the United States, that sort of thing. This is assuming, you know, we're, we're talking U.S. laws here. Yeah. Money laundering happens with dollars. Money laundering happens with Bitcoin. And, you know, there are certainly stories about Silk Road and places like that where people do buy illicit, uh, illicit substances and goods using cryptocurrency. Um, and that's definitely true. One, one, one thing I would say, though, is this is a unique thing that some people don't necessarily realize. So on the block, so on the Bitcoin network and, and a lot of cryptocurrencies, your name isn't attached to your address. It's not attached to your wallet on the blockchain. So you won't see Tyler Frederick in the Bitcoin blockchain. The, the blockchain is publicly accessible and viewable, however. Mm-hmm. So I know my public key. I can go on and see all the transactions that I've ever done before. If I transact with you, I presumably can see your public key, yeah. right? Because I need to send the funds somewhere. Yeah. So I can also go online and see all of the transactions that your wallet has ever made before. Mm. So that's if you're a compliance person at one of these financial institutions touching Bitcoin, that's actually somewhat helpful, yeah. right? If you're a law enforcement professional, that's actually somewhat helpful. You mm-hmm. can't do that with cash, right? Now, there's the downside of, you know, is that something where you want to store massive amounts of wealth, you know, where if you transact with somebody else, they can now just check out your wallet on the public blockchain and see that you have a bunch of funds on there. Mm. So there are some privacy implications, but, um, you know, and, and there are methods, you know, there are techniques that you can use to kind of mask that stuff. But there are some interesting implications there. Another kind of area of ambiguity is securities regulations. Mm. So sometimes you have some businesses or quasi businesses and they raise funds by issuing their own cryptocurrency. Um, Securities laws still apply, but there's some gray area over how do you actually determine whether it's a security or not. Uh, Some of those laws were written in the 30s or Supreme Court rulings Mm -hmm. came down uh, Mm. in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, well before digital, well before (laughs) cryptocurrency. Um, so there are some unknowns around there, but definitely money laundering laws still apply. Tax laws uh, still apply. Some of these, again, innovative things that cryptocurrencies do aren't necessarily well represented in the tax code because mm. these things are developing at a rapid pace. Um, so there are lots of unknowns, but I, I would say I think sometimes the regulatory uncertainty angle is a little bit overblown in, mm. the, in the cryptocurrency space. Gotcha. And then just kind of, so I guess looping back to my original question about popularity, if you were looking forward with cryptocurrencies, what do you see as kind of an optimistic outlook and then the opposite side of that kind of a pessimistic uh, outlook for cryptocurrencies? That's a good question. I, I think I think one thing that you could likely see is some of this technology. You know, I, I, I almost think about cryptocurrencies, blockchain, it's like a sandbox for experimentation. You know, there is a lot of money moving into the space. Bitcoin, at, at the time we're talking here, is about a trillion dollar uh, asset. Um, but it's still, you know, especially a lot of the smaller cryptocurrencies, people can experiment and not really break things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, we think about moving fast and breaking things. You, you can't really move fast and break things with the U.S. dollar or if you're you know, a huge bank or huge financial services uh, company. But, you know, when you're developing cryptocurrencies, you can do that. So I think one one thing that you can see is some of these innovations that have come out of the cryptocurrency space, making their way into the traditional financial system. And I, I think one of the one of the things that we could potentially look forward to is I think a lot of these innovations are actually going to be behind the scenes. 
Mm. Um, you know, if we can make payments more efficient, we don't really want to think about the plumbing, right? You know, how, when we make a payment, we don't want to think about how the data is moving from this entity to this entity to this entity to that entity. And my payments finally complete after two days or three days, right? We want to make a payment to somebody and have it get there within a few seconds or a few minutes or, or something like that. You know, we can stream a video instantly nowadays. Yeah. So it sort of makes sense that we would be able to send money that way. So I think some of these innovations can help traditional payments in a behind the scenes, almost invisible way. I think on the more pessimistic angle, there are definite concerns from some policymakers. And I, I am certainly not a policymaker. I'm a technologist experimenter and all that. <laughs> there are concerns from some policymakers about the anti-money laundering piece, about the terrorist financing piece. You know, there, there, there frankly have been stories of terrorist organizations putting Bitcoin addresses out there publicly and requesting donations. And you can look at the blockchain. Again, it's public for mm -hmm. Bitcoin. And you can see that that sort of stuff does happen. I could see some policymakers wanting to clamp down on some of that stuff. You know, you, you do see some countries around the world putting in significant restrictions and pretty much outlawing cryptocurrency. I don't know, you know, again, you know, pessimistic case, you know, you could you could say that that could happen in the United States. I don't I don't know what the likelihood is one way or the other, but it is a possibility. Hmm. It is a possibility. It's a high risk space. There are lots of unknowns. And, you know, I think you have to lay that out there as a possibility. Hmm. So, Tyler, I'd like to ask the question because you, you've kind of... You've, you've gotten to a few times in our conversation today is about, all right, so if we purchase a, a cryptocurrency and how do we protect ourselves from fraud or theft, right? You talked about the password, right? So obviously that, that would be a very obvious one is if you you know, had a very obvious password or left it on your, none of us do this by the way, but if you left it on your monitor and <laughs> people could just kind of see it and then get access mm -hmm. to certain things. But other than, than kind of that as a password protection, like, because uh, I think some of the question is you just talked about public keys and people seeing things and going like, okay, that's Tyler. Or if, if you knew like, okay, well, that's Tom Brady right here, right? <laughs> Here's Tom Brady, and he's got, um, and here's his public key of Bitcoin, and we now know that, that everybody wants to go after Tom Brady, and maybe all the New York Jets fans go after him, and they try to, you know, they try to hack into his private key in order to get access to his accounts. So I guess that's the question is, how, how do we, as these things are evolving, but even today, how do we protect ourselves from fraud or theft of our investment here? That's a, that's a really good question. And there's always a balance between how easy it is to use and how secure it is, right? You know, you can lock a bunch of dollars in a vault somewhere and those are going to be very secure, but it's going to be hard to give, you know, pay for dinner or give those dollars to a friend if they're locked in a vault. So maybe it's appropriate to lock a million dollars in a vault, but maybe it's not appropriate to lock 10 bucks in a vault. Wallet security is really important and it's a really complicated topic. There are a lot of security measures you can take with wallets. I, I think the thing with cryptocurrency is if, you, if you're storing your funds yourself on a smartphone, if you have a Bitcoin app and there are a ton of different wallets out there, if you're storing it on your phone or on your own personal computer, you're responsible for your own security. And if somebody compromises your security, if there's a virus and, and all that, and there certainly are viruses that you know people try to detect when you're typing in a Bitcoin address into a website and they you know switch it on you and they replace it with theirs, you send it to you send it directly to an attacker instead of 
whom you were trying to send it to. Um, it's complicated. There are a bunch of issues and there are companies that provide custodial services for this stuff. So they store your Bitcoin for you. And, you know, you might have a login, uh, you know, username and password, you know, you might give them your identity information. So if you lose your password, you know, you can recover your password. And it's more like a traditional bank experience that, that you know, that, that we may be used to. It's a complicated issue. I, I would say that, it, it, and it's tough when it's such an emerging technology, everything is new. People need to be really careful because you do see a lot of scams. And, you know, sometimes, for example, on social media, you see people pretending to be celebrities and they'll put a tweet out there and they'll say, send me 10 Bitcoin and I'll send you 100 back. And, you know, <laughs> if you, you know, if we think about this as a digital bearer <laughs> asset, right? Like, I'm not going to mail somebody 100 bucks in cash and then just trust them to mail me $1,000 back in cash, right? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, but the technology can be complicated enough that you're like, well, is that real? Is it not? So I, I would say people need to be very careful with interacting with technology they don't understand, especially where cryptocurrency, it's a mix of technology and money, right? It's your wealth. And you know, our wealth is particularly important to us. So people just need to be very careful to not, you know, we hear people say, invest in what you know, be careful when you're transacting and, and you know, spending money on, on some of these assets, which, uh, you know, may require a lot of technical expertise. Um, so kind of shifting gears a little bit, because right, this podcast is called the retirement success in Maine. So talking about retirees a little bit. So they're probably more digital than they give themselves credit for, right? So online banking, buying stuff through the internet, all that kind of stuff. Um, so why should retirees really be paying attention to this you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency technology? And how could it impact them on a day-to-day -day basis? It's a good question. And I think the fraud piece is really important. It, it, yeah. You know, a lot of times we hear about novel technologies you know, we feel like we need to catch up or we need to, you know, jump on the bandwagon. And there's a lot, of, you know, there are a lot of things that can go wrong with cryptocurrency as a digital bearer asset. If you lose your funds, you know, you can't submit a dispute to your bank and get your funds back. And it's, it's complicated. It's hard, for, it's hard for us who are in the space to keep up with all the developments. So the people who aren't in the space you know, kind of experimenting with the tech on a regular basis, there's a lot of potential for, for fraud and, and things to go wrong. But, but I would say, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but payments are more and more digital. So we think about, if we think about Maine in particular, Maine's a rural state, you know, lots of places may not have access to, uh, you know, bank branches right down the road. You know, if we can make digital payments, and, and this isn't necessarily suggesting that everyone goes out and starts spending uh, making all their payments in Bitcoin or, or you name it. But if we can make digital payments more efficient, a lot of this, a lot of the innovations will be behind the scenes. They'll be invisible. But in practice, if people can start making payments and, you know, the whole thing settles within a minute, instead of, you know, sometimes we have our, we mail checks or, you know, we wait for ACH payments and sometimes they take two or three days. We can start seeing some of these real-time payments. That, that can be a real practical benefit uh, for a lot of people who may be more digital than they give them, them, themselves credit for. Hmm. 
So Tyler, I want to kind of rotate here because I think, you know, many countries globally, including the United States, are undertaking this stronger sense of nationalism, you know, putting their country first. And, you know, I think, you know, many developed countries use their economies, their currencies, financial systems as ways of bartering with other nations to get, whether it's favorable trade, to change environmental conditions, negotiate rules of war, etc. So I think the question here is, you know, if these citizens of these developed countries start putting a lot of their wealth into currencies, example cryptocurrencies that aren't that currency of their their home nation does that seem to to threaten you know the the nation of state yeah so borders don't exist with cryptocurrencies right there's no concept of cross-border payments with bitcoin because there's just no countries involved so Mm -hmm. a payment from a person sitting in the united states to a person in canada doesn't it's invisible to the the actual bitcoin protocol itself that has that sort of concept has the potential for some benefits and we think about cross-border payments well borders are invisible that makes cross-border payments easier but there are some implications to that strategically you know there a lot of the ways that capital flows around the world now it just sort of relies on the fact that there are borders and that's how payment systems work. So Bitcoin certainly disrupts that. If, if we think about how mining works, miners are located all over the world and anybody can be a miner. You know, you don't have specific institutions validating transactions. So I, I think that is a, is a big variable for policymakers. And, you know, if there is a lot of adoption, I think that may make policymakers, you know, consider that reality and, you know, take certain measures if they feel like that's appropriate to, you know, retain some of that control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, Tyler, I think one of the things that I, I like what you're saying here is, look, essentially, why why is cryptocurrency available is that there's a market for it, right? Is there there's a demand for this. And just because there's a demand for this one thing does not mean it, it's binary from other things that are already in existence from being still around. And it, it, we hear this example on the investment world and active management of, of stocks and bonds versus passive management. So it's like, well, they're, they're, they can be conflicting ideas and philosophies, but there's still a place for both. And, and I think what I heard you say a little bit there was, hey, just because this is there doesn't mean that maybe it throws out all world uh, currencies and there probably still is a US dollar. There's still a, you know, in, by the way, the, the euro is still a pretty new currency, by the way, right? So there's still ability for new currencies and new, new nations or consortium of nations to band together and create this and create their systems on it. I, th- I think that's just a really important point I just want to make here that you're were, you were kind of saying as well is, you know, it's it has a place because there's a market for it. If there wasn't a market for it, then it would go away. And and maybe there's other things that 20 years from now the technology is still there and crypto isn't there for some reason, but it will have an impact. So yeah, I I, I want to ask a, another question here of you, Tyler, is because there, I think there's there's more adoption or, or we're hearing just more popularity of cryptocurrencies, but also we're hearing there's a, a groundswell for some time, but even more so is this concept of being green having a neutral carbon footprint and a car- neutral carbon impact that you know i think we're we're a little bit maybe more aware of our impact on our, our world uh, fellow citizens 
And in, I, I think where we're seeing of these themes is maybe there's a little bit of friction between the two, right? And, and so I, I, I want to hear a little bit about that because, you know, you talked about this, uh, you, you re- mentioned it for a little bit in terms of the, that mining. And, you know, I, and again, I, I don't have that much uh, at all experience just tangentially hearing about it, but you hear about especially the people that own these computers and they're investing in video cards and all these uh, hardware equipment that has to be able to process these levels of transactions and and try to get the lottery as you put it so but that, that it seems like that consumes energy so you can talk about this um cryptocurrency and is this really a green thing or is this maybe not really a, a green uh trend at all yeah power is a, a power is a big component of securing the network if you're you know forgetting about putting the green stuff aside for a second when you're doing just is mining profitable for me a big part of the calculation is what are your electricity costs and for a lot of people if they have high electricity costs mining simply isn't profitable for them so power is is an important part of the equation when we get you know bringing back the green environmentally friendly component bitcoin does consume a lot of energy it consumes a lot you know more power than you know a lot of countries uh, around the world now that power has a purpose right it's not we're not just burning up energy the more power that it takes to mine the more secure the platform is essentially if you want to if you want to reverse an old transaction you need to redo the work that everyone else did however many blocks back you're going you need to redo that and then some you need to catch up and build a new chain that surpasses the existing chain so more electricity does make the platform more secure but the other the other component is there there are estimates uh, i believe approximately 70% of the energy used to mine bitcoin is renewables is green energy you know, we can think about stuff like hydro and all that but one of the clever things about bitcoin is it operates 24/7 blocks are being generated approximately every 10 minutes around the clock so what that can do is it can consume some of the surplus power that's not being used in certain locations you know we think about some of the uh, uh, we think of some of the hydroelectric dams in China. You know, China is planning cities that aren't occupy, aren't populated yet, but they have hydropower. Well, nobody's living there yet, but you know, if we have the ability to generate all this hydropower, why not plug it into the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Otherwise, it would simply be Absolutely. wasted. Yeah. Um, you know, we think about some of these natural gas operations and sometimes they just need to vent some of the unused gas into the air, you know, if there's not demand for power. Why not plug that into the Bitcoin blockchain um, or, you know, any blockchain? But, you know, it is a concern. And we talked about all the innovation that's going on. Some of these cryptocurrencies are beginning to develop ways to add new blocks that isn't mining, that, you know, these computers don't need to turn out all these puzzles. You know, really what you're trying to accomplish is one entity isn't in control of validating transactions and who's in and who's out. Mm -hmm. If you can do that through a voting process and ensure that, you know, one entity doesn't control 51% of the votes, that's another way to do it. You don't need to do it via mining. And and that's something that, you know, we talked about Ethereum. You know, that's one of the things that Ethereum is striving for. That's on their roadmap for innovation. They've started uh, to roll to roll some of that out as a voting-based process that is more uh, less energy demanding, more environmentally friendly. Interesting. Um, so we've talked a lot about where cryptocurrency is today. So if we look in our, you know, forward-looking thought, where do you think cryptocurrency is going to be in the next 10 to 20 years? Where do you think it's going? 
I have no clue, and I'm not going to pretend <laughs> to have any idea. If we if we think back to a year ago, right? So you know, we're we're in March 2021. You know, if we think back 12, 13 months ago, um, there was a lot of chaos in the financial markets. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people, you know, and you know, we we talked about why people might hold Bitcoin. You know, one of the reasons some people thought is, oh, it's a stable store of value and chaos. People are going to want to get into Bitcoin and that definitely didn't happen a year ago. You know, we, we saw Bitcoin plummet down to $3,000 per Bitcoin. Uh, right when, you know, the financial markets were experiencing chaos, Bitcoin was right with it experiencing, you could probably say experienced more chaos. So as little as a year ago, Bitcoin was in the 3000s. As we speak, Bitcoin is in the 50, $50, $55,000 range. So it's an incredible rate of return over 12 years, uh, 12 months. Who knows where it's going to go from here? Bitcoin has experienced many periods where it's been, you know, 70, 80% off its highs for an extended period of time. You know, it's obviously experienced a 20-fold increase the past 12 months. So who knows? I, I, and I think that's one of the things that that is appealing for certain people. They do like the volatility and the excitement and the ability to speculate and all that. I think that is appealing for people. But there are real risks and real unknown. So I don't know. And I think anybody who does claim to know, I don't know. I wouldn't really trust that. <laughs> oh, that's great. So Tyler, we have reached the end of our conversation I have one last question for you that is not related to cryptocurrency. Well, it could be, not directly. So obviously, we're here on the Retirement Success in Maine podcast, um, a question that we love to ask all of our guests. Um, So I want to ask you, what is your personal definition of retirement success? So for most of our lives, we need to put food on the table. You know, we need to pay the bills. You know, we need to we need to pay what we need to pay to get through life and, you know, watch out for our families and all that. And, you know, we need to work full-time jobs for the most part to make that happen. A lot of us, you know, some of us are fortunate enough to work in jobs that we love and don't really consider that work. Uh, But for many of us, we just got to do what we got to do to put food on the table. So if you've been fortunate enough to prepare for retirement over that, that course of time, retirement is when you take that constraint away. You don't need to spend 40, 50 hours a week you know, doing something you don't necessarily like to put food on the table. Mm. Now you're, you can, you know, you can kind of take charge of your life without that, without that constraint. So for me, it's finding fulfillment. You know, it's, it's being able to pursue whatever area of life it is that you really want to without that constraint. So whether it's, whether it's going on vacations, whether it's moving closer to family and being around kids or grandkids, whether it's, you know, getting more involved with your faith at your church, you know, kind of you name it, it's you're able to take charge of your life and spend time doing things, spend time on things you love rather than stuff you just need to do to put food on the table. Hmm. Well, Tyler, I think that's a, that's a really insightful answer. Appreciate yeah. you, you sharing that with us today. And I, I really can't thank you enough for coming on and just sharing uh, just your knowledge, your expertise on on just cryptocurrency in general. Just again, I, I think for a lot of us is that we've never really had the explanation of what this is, what what's it about, how is it going to impact me? And I think you did an excellent job of of covering all that today and and then some with us. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate your time and and uh, we'll catch you next time. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Take care. <laughs>
So really great to have Tyler Frederick on the the show today. Again, for somebody that has really been around it, worked with it, been part of a crypto exchange, um, done research projects, uh, just kind of touch cryptocurrencies in lots of different ways and have him come on the show today and really explain, you know, and even to the three of us uh, in Mm -hmm. as much of of an understandable, relatable way as we can. I thought Tyler did a really great job uh, kind of covering covering the topic of cryptocurrency in your retirement and what to know. I thought, thought he did a fantastic uh, job there. Mm. So as as always, we love to wrap up our shows with lessons that we, we, we learned from today. So love to um, have uh, maybe Curtis, you want to kick off what you took from today's conversation with Tyler? Honestly, I think the whole conversation was a takeaway for me. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's clear just how how much Tyler knows about this whole the cryptocurrency world, as you said, but f- specifically to hear about, you know, for him to dive into the blockchains the way he did and the security, whether it's your public key and the private key, you know, for me, that answered a lot of questions on the security of crypt- owning cryptocurrency. And he even when he got into the mining of it um, and hearing about the transaction fees and the rewards for that, that the whole thing, again, was was very informative for me. And it's just clear how much how much expertise Tyler has in the, in the area. Yeah. Abby, how about yourself? What was, uh, what was something that you took away from today's show? Yeah. I thought he did a really good job of explaining kind of the technology behind, you know, these exchanges and cryptocurrency and payment between different parties. And I thought it was interesting the way that he linked that to the fact that we may see changes, you know, behind the scenes of online payments or digital payments that we might not even notice mm-hmm. all stemming from this technology that originated with cryptocurrencies. So something I had certainly never thought of um, and a really good takeaway that he, that he brought up, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Cause I, again, I, I think there's something where, you know, maybe the, the headline of it, or maybe the value of it is, I think what gets a lot of the attention and maybe be less of of the uh, indirect impacts that it might be having on today's world and especially on a retirement or is if he's yeah. saying hey speed of payment may change over time and you know i know for businesses that's a big deal where maybe yeah. you've paid your employees first without receiving revenue uh, which mm. happens with a lot of contractors things right. like that uh, could be extraordinarily beneficial yeah. uh, for lots of different places so that's a that's a really good one yeah. uh, I, I think it was really an important point you know where uh, curtis asked the question about national nationalism, right? Is, hey, this is something where engaging U.S. dollars is important and and something where, you know, I I, I could see where, you know, that's, that's, there's a, there's a pride in kind of doing business in my own home country's currency. Mm. But from another perspective, you could also see the criticism of that, of, hey, you know, especially looking back in just the last two financial crises of our countries in the world, you know, where we've, we've actually, the government uh, wanted to stimulate the economy. And one way that they do to stimulate the economy, get it back out of recession, is they start uh, maybe making payments or uh, they, they start loaning money. And, and so one way to do this is start printing dollars, right? Print yeah. more of your currency, put more out there to get it in people's hands. Well, when you do that, now there's an entity manipulating manipulating the value of, of your wealth. And I, so that, that's a very traditional, I think, complaint or criticism of maybe country-issued uh, currencies. So cryptocurrency kind of being, again, a little more formulaic and a little bit more determined. 
again, I, I think we, he was also interested to hear Tyler's kind of take on, well, here's some criticisms of crypto too. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of those being that, you know, Hey, these are new rules and in the values of them while they are that, but again, this digital. So you are trusting a computer system and there's a lot of, I know from, especially from a rural perspective, and we've had lots of uh, digitization of the economy, including jobs. There's a lot of distrust around computers in general. So we can absolutely, absolutely see where mm. cryptocurrency and what it represents is very much against uh, what a lot of people feel and, and where they believe. So uh, again, what, what, what the today, today's show was really wanted to be about was really just an education point, not an investment yeah. conversation, not of uh, the merits, pros and cons of things, but this is out there. There's lots of things about it. You're hearing this more and more and how does it impact people and wh- how can we maybe educate all of us a little bit more about it is very important. So mm-hmm. I, I think, again, Tyler did a great job today. Yeah. So for those that are, of course, uh, looking for a little bit more information, we will have uh, a few more links in our show notes, of course. You can go to blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash 41. So we're show 41 today. And uh, you can find more information there. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get some more, more things that if you want to read or, or get a little more up to speed on cryptocurrency, you can find it there. We, as always, we appreciate your listenership. Uh, if, you, uh, if you would like, uh, feel free to just uh, hop in and either in your favorite platform, just drop a review or let us know how we're doing there. We'd always appreciate that. But uh, until next time, uh, take care. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.